Hello, and welcome back to the Perth U.S. Asia Center's Perspectives Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Springer. Today's guest is our Alliance 21 fellow, Madeline Creighton. Madeline is visiting us from Washington, D.C., where she worked as the Principal Deputy Administrator for the National Nuclear Security Administration, known as the NNSA, which sits under the U.S. Department of Energy. She's since finished her term, and now she's come to Australia to take part in the Alliance 21 Fellowship. The Alliance 21 Fellowship is a three to 10 month exchange of senior scholars and policy analysts between Australia and the U.S. Fellows undertake policy-related research on strategic opportunities and challenges facing the Australia-U.S. alliance in the Indo-Pacific. The fellowship was established by the Perth U.S. Asia Center, the United States Studies Center in Sydney, and the U.S. Department of State. Madeline starts out our podcast by telling me about growing up in Indiana, where she went to the same high school as the famous David Letterman. So I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, which it often gets referred to in the U.S. as one of the flyover states. So as you're flying from one coast to the other, that's where I grew up. Indiana is famous for, oh, several things. Basketball, auto racing, among others. Nice place to grow up. A lot of corn, a lot of soybeans, a lot of farming. It's a nice state. David Letterman, is he from Indiana? David, in fact, yeah. David Letterman went to, and I went to the same high school. Oh, wow. Okay, same time. He or... was about five years ahead of me. Okay, yeah. But same high school. Oh, interesting fact. So from Indiana, how did you find your way into a career in nuclear policy? Well, I started life as a lawyer. And when I graduated from law school, my husband actually got transferred to Washington with his company. I was very happy to do that because my grandmother lived there. And from then, worked at the Department of Energy as a lawyer for about 10 years. And then eventually from there, made my way to the Hill, which is the shorthand for Capitol Hill, and went to work for the U.S. Senate. Very interesting. So what does a trial attorney for the U.S. Department of Energy do? What kind of interesting stuff did you get into in that role? The general counsel's office at the Department of Energy, of course, handles a wide variety of legal matters for the department. And I was in a small group that did litigation. Most all of it was associated with things nuclear. So we did some environmental litigation. We did transportation litigation. I personally worked on a series of lawsuits that had to do with the transportation of spent fuel, spent nuclear fuel. We also did a fair amount of litigation associated with radiation exposures. Very interesting. Now, you're here in Perth as part of the Alliance 21 Fellowship. Is this your first time visiting Australia? It's not my first time to Australia, but it's my first time certainly to Perth and uh, also to Sydney. My previous trips had really been for work, and it was, it was limited to Canberra. Very Canberra-based. And what drew you to the Alliance 21 Fellowship? Well, that's actually sort of an interesting question. When I was asked to come be the Alliance 21 Fellow, my first reaction was, are you sure you have the right person? Because <laughs> my, my impression of all of this was that it was more of a traditional foreign policy type fellowship. And that's not my background. My background is much more on programs, overseeing programs, and very specific policies associated with things, nuclear, space, missile defense, a little bit of cyber, and that sort of thing. Uh, so I am not a regional policy expert. And you recently finished your term as Principal Deputy Administrator of the National Nuclear Security Administration, the NNSA, within the Department of Energy in the U.S. Can you tell me a little bit about the work of the NNSA? 
So the NNSA, the National Nuclear Security Administration, is a semi-autonomous entity within the Department of Energy. It has three missions, but it traces its lineage, even though it itself is a fairly new organization, it traces its lineage all the way back to the Manhattan Project. So its three missions are, of course, the nuclear weapons. The second is nuclear proliferation and then responding to any events that would be associated with proliferation. So as we used to say, prevent, counter, and respond. And then the third branch of the NNSA is the branch that we share with the U.S. Navy that's responsible for the research and development and production of the reactors, the nuclear reactors that power many of the U.S. Navy's surface ships, really the carriers, and then also the nuclear-powered submarines. Very interesting. Uh, Take me through your typical day in that role. What did it look like? Well, the good thing and the fun thing about it was there was no typical day. (laughs) It depended on what we were doing. We could be in budget season, and it was very much focused on responding to questions from both the authorizers and the appropriators on the various committees on Capitol Hill, both the House and the Senate. It could be the period of, of time where we're actually developing the budget. So sorting out within the within the agency, what are the various programs? What are the costs of the programs? How much money do we have left over from the year before? And just working on, on building the, the budgets. And then there's... Then there are those days when you walk in the door, which pretty much always started with the staff meeting with the secretary. And then something totally, totally out of the blue hits you, and then you're, you're off on that. And whatever was planned for the day is, is completely out the window. Long hours or? Long hours. Yeah. Very, very, but very, fun, but good. Fun. Very, very interesting mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, now, shifting our conversation to policy, can you tell me about where we are with nuclear nonproliferation on a global level today? So that's obviously a very complicated question and and probably merits a much longer answer. In some respects, we are much better. At one point, there was a lot of concern that there would be many, many more states who had their eye at one point on developing nuclear weapons and have not. We've seen states that had started weapons programs and then are no longer continuing them. And I use Libya as an example of that, South Africa, Iran. And then there are others like North Korea who are continuing their, their nuclear weapons programs. But on balance, it's it's a pretty good story. Another really good story that we don't tend to really understand is some of the history of the dissolution of the former Soviet Union. And when it dissolved, there were several states that had nuclear weapons. And those states, Ukraine, Kazakhstan among them, gave up their nuclear weapons. At one point, they were only after the U.S. and, at that point, Russia, in terms of the size of their arsenals. So the fact that these states have given up their nuclear weapons, and Kazakhstan in particular, frankly, has now become a really a recognized world leader and advocate for nonproliferation. Do you think treaties like the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty start as uh, the acronym, and other treaties like it have successfully reduced nuclear arms stocks? I absolutely do. So when you think about where both the U.S. and Russia were at their peak, they both were in the 30-plus thousand range of nuclear weapons. A combination of just the passage of time, the reduction of tensions, the end of the Cold War, and then a whole series of treaties have brought us to the point that now today, the U.S. and Russia, under the terms of the new Strategic Arms Treaty, the New START Treaty, have limitations of 1,550 warheads. So it's a substantial decrease from where we were at the height of the Cold War. I think, yeah, the peak was, what was the peak year? 1986 for the most nuclear arms stocks. Mm -hmm. A lot of progress made Mm -hmm. since then, I think. 
What about the New START treaty? Has it been successful? It has. Both Russia and the U.S. are in compliance with their obligations under New START. That was the 1,550 warhead limit, strategic warhead limit. It also has a delivery system limit as well, both deployed and non-deployed. The central limitations of the treaty went into effect earlier this year, and both countries are in compliance. Very good. Now, shifting from nuclear weapons to nuclear energy, what kind of role do you think nuclear energy can play in reducing carbon emissions and reliance on fossil fuel? Well, it certainly can. I think there are many issues associated with it, but it certainly can play a role. During the Obama administration at the Department of Energy, although it I was not on the energy side of the Department of Energy. The, the motto, the energy motto at the time was we had an all of the above policy. Yeah, very good. Now back to your Alliance 21 fellowship here in Australia. What kind of insight do you think Australia has on nuclear nonproliferation? Well, Australia, of course, has been a party to the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty for, for many years. I believe they signed it in around 1970. And... Australia has has certainly been a partner in a lot of the efforts in the region the U.S. has undertaken for many years. One of the efforts has been called the Proliferation Security Initiative, and Australia has been an active an active member of that voluntary initiative. And what kind of future roles do you think Australia can play in this non-proliferation space? I hope they continue to be strong advocates of nonproliferation. The flip side of this is also being a strong advocate for the deterrent role. There's a there is a relationship between deterrence and nonproliferation. So living under the US nuclear umbrella has also prevented a number of states from seeking their own nuclear weapons. So there is a there is a definite mix and a and a different relationships between the deterrence and the proliferation prevention. Australia has significant uranium deposits, and I think I'm probably going to get this number wrong. Three mines are currently operating. Do you know what kind of policies Australia has in place to make sure uranium doesn't end up weaponized, I guess is the word you could use? When you talk about weaponization, you really talk about enrichment. Okay. So when uranium is enriched to certain levels on the order of 5% or lower, That's really what's commercial. There's some research applications a little bit higher, but above 20% enrichment is what's really considered on the weapon side. So Australia, like many other countries, has a process where they enter into various arrangements and agreements. The US has the same thing under the Atomic Energy Act. And those agreements, uh, which also include end-use agreements, make sure that whatever exports of uranium are, are done for peaceful purposes. The other big important role in all of this globally is the role of the International Atomic Energy Agency. So under the auspices of the IEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, countries who want to have a nuclear program, a commercial nuclear program, a civil nuclear program, sign various agreements. And once these comprehensive safeguards agreements are in place, then countries who would export nuclear equipment for reactors, or in Australia's case, uranium, can then enter into agreements with these countries. Now, in March 2018, you published a piece for the Arms Control Association, which assessed the 2018 U.S. Nuclear Posture Review. You noted some points in the review that you found a little bit troubling Could you explain to our listeners what the Nuclear Posture Review is and what you found troubling about the most recent one? Every administration post-Cold War has done a nuclear posture review pretty much at the outset of that administration's term. And what it does is it really looks at the threat. It looks at 
what the deterrence requirements are, and then comes to a conclusion on the size and the makeup of, of the nuclear arsenal. All of them have endorsed the idea of a triad, which basically is a sea component, which are the submarines, a land component, and um, also an air component. So think bombers and, and other aircraft. So the Trump administration NPR was consistent in that. And they were also consistent in carrying forward a lot of the programs that were started under the Obama administration. So the replacement of the delivery systems, the new submarine, the new bomber, and eventually a new intercontinental ballistic missile. And also in the idea that the existing, albeit substantially smaller, number of warheads would be life extended. So no new nuclear weapons were being produced. But the one thing where they did diverge, and the thing that I was concerned about, is they had two supplements, one of which was to do a low-yield variant of the warhead for the submarine-based warheads. And it was couched in terms of countering Russia's fairly significant advantage in low-yield warheads. The U.S. really doesn't have a lot of single-purpose low-yield warheads. Russia, on the other hand, has put a lot of emphasis on developing low-yield warheads. And so this was described as a counter to Russia's efforts on the, on the low-yield warheads. Okay. What challenges does the U.S. face in implementing the 2018 NPR? I think it's probably mostly consensus and money. So it's very important if the the basic pieces, for instance, those pieces that have been consistent over time are funded, that there is support from the public and also support from Congress. So it, it really is those two things. It's, um, it's an expensive program, although it does remain a fairly small portion uh, percentage-wise of the overall defense budget. It still is expensive and it still is something that is certainly has its controversy on occasion. Now we're here in the Indo-Pacific region, as we call it. And although Australia is safe, doesn't have nuclear weapons, our region has most of the world's nuclear armed states. Thinking India, Pakistan, China, North Korea, and Russia, if you stretch out the Indo-Pacific geographically uh, far enough. What do you think we should be worried about in our region here in the Indo-Pacific? There are a few things. One certainly is the risk of theft and a terrorist use of materials, either in an improvised nuclear device. Somewhat less worrisome is a dirty bomb, although it would be, it would be a significant event. After that, I worry about accidental use, where there is a, an accident involving a nuclear weapon. And then the third would really be that mistaken use. So either an unintended use, so a thing was you know, more like that accident, that it was launched by accident, or that it was used intentionally in, in a situation that was misinterpreted as a nuclear attack, and it wasn't. You know? So those are, those are the things that I really worry about. I see. Now, you must get this question a lot, but talk to us a little bit about North Korea. What's happening there, in your opinion? Well, North Korea is such a closed society that we don't know a lot about North Korea. From my perspective, the things that I worry about, obviously, are its missile programs. It has a submarine program that it's pursuing, and the pursuit of its long-range ICBMs. It has it has a long and complicated history with the International Atomic Energy Agency. It withdrew from the NPT. The U.S. has, on several previous occasions, tried to make progress on denuclearization. It's never worked. And as far as we know, they're still, they're still producing materials. How many warheads is a matter of significant speculation. We don't really know. It's really 
more a guess based on what we think the amount of materials that they have produced, but it's it's very uncertain. So, you know, when I when you asked me earlier what are some of the things that I worry about, accidents, I would worry about an accidental situation, and I would worry about the use of a nuclear weapon uh, in a situation that was a mis- was mistaken. Mm-hmm. So now my next question, hopefully you can comfort us a little bit. <laughs> but what do you can you assess North Korea's nuclear capabilities and what they're actually capable of achieving? Could they deliver a nuclear warhead on a on a rocket or where are they at? Do you do you have any idea? Well, they they certainly have had a more aggressive test program lately, mm-hmm. both on their warheads and on their delivery systems, and, and they certainly have had some successful rocket launches. And mm-hmm. they obviously have conducted a series of underground nuclear uh, nuclear tests that resulted in, resulted in nuclear yield. The big question is, have they been able to successfully mate the warheads to the delivery systems? And particularly on an ICBM, the big question is, do they have a successful reentry vehicle? So their, their tests, for the most part, have not been long-distance tests. They've been high-distance tests. Okay. And so whether or not the They've, they've managed to accomplish all the engineering associated with the reentry vehicle is pretty uncertain. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, how about China? What nuclear capabilities do they have? So China has maintained in terms of numbers, fairly consistent numbers over time. They certainly have an ongoing modernization program. They have diversified and because China has a no first use policy, one of the things that China has been doing is various activities to ensure the survivability of their second strike capability. So if they were attacked, they want to make sure that they would have the ability to respond. They have a relatively small arsenal. Okay. Very interesting. Now to India and Pakistan. What kind of frameworks do they have to produce nuclear weapons stocks? Do they have any agreements with each other? Nothing? Any, any prospects of a treaty? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, uh, clearly it's something that has been encouraged by the U.S. And periodically there are some, you know, there will be some progress in terms of having discussions. I think the, as worrisome as the nuclear weapons are, they have many, many other issues between them that they need to resolve. (laughs) They need to sort out first. Okay. Now on October 8th, we're hosting our annual In the Zone conference. This year we're focused on the zone above space. Can you tell me a little bit about your interest in nuclear security in space? So uh, space is one of the great enablers for all U.S. all U.S. systems and for the systems of, of many of our allies, Australia included. So it's not the nuclear security, it's just the security okay. of, of things in space. So yeah. we want, we, we all want to be able to use space Use space for communications, use space for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, use space for support to our warfighters, to allied warfighters. And so you want to make sure that the the space is secure. And that goes from all the way from the construction of the satellites through the supply chain, through making sure that the users on the ground and their handheld equipment, their terminals, that they're secure and not subject to jamming and spoofing. Very, very interesting we also like to ask our guests about books. What have you been reading on your uh, your flights to Australia? Uh, well, <laughs> I have started 
Jim Clapper's memoir. He's, okay. Because yeah, he's yeah. he's speaking You'll here. You'll see him next, next week. Next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've started that okay. one. I've also been reading A History of Australia that has The History of Australia in Seven Questions. Okay. Uh, let's see, some some pure recreational reading, like Dan Brown's new book. Oh, okay, yeah. I was hoping you'd say Twilight. Or <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there's, there's also a new book that I haven't read yet that I have by Jeffrey Lewis. It's oh, yeah. The, yeah. the 2020 Commission yeah. report that, you know, is a completely fictional report of a commission in the aftermath of a war with North Korea. And then there's another book that I recently finished called Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a true story, one that's known much in the U.S., and it has to do with uh, the Osage Indians in the U.S. and a series of murders and, and really how the FBI got its start in solving some of those murders. Fascinating book. Good. Good. Thanks for your reading list. (laughs) My last question is, what do you think some of your next career steps are after the fellowship here in Australia finishes? That's a very interesting question. I I don't have a good answer for that. (laughs) A lot of it really depends on what happens in the in the next administration. As a as a political appointee in in the Obama administration, like all political appointees, I, I left at the change of the administration. But I had also spent a large a large part of my my career as a career federal employee. So I, I did retire from, from federal service at the end of it. So I don't know. When I go back into federal service, I've been doing a variety of, of different things since I left, some consulting, some advisory boards, and it's really been quite fun. So I don't, I don't actually know yet. That's that's no problem. Madeline Creeden, thank you very much for coming on our podcast. We wish you the best for your fellowship, and we're glad that you're spending a couple weeks with us here in Perth. So uh, all the best to you. Thank, thank you. you very much. You were listening to Madeline Creeden talk about her fascinating work in nuclear policy, and we hope the fellowship launches her into the next stage of her career. We wish her the best for her fellowship and look forward to seeing where she goes next. We hope you will join us for our annual In the Zone conference this year on 8 October. This year's theme is The Zone Above, the Indo-Pacific Era in Space. We have a great lineup of speakers, including Dr. Megan Clark, the head of the new Australian Space Agency, and Pamela Melroy, a former astronaut. Join this conference to take part in a discussion that will influence Australia's agenda for regional engagement in space. You can purchase tickets at ticketswa.com slash event slash zone 2018. Thank you for listening to the Perth US Asia Center's Perspectives podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to other episodes on our website at www.perthusasia.edu.au. Thanks again for listening. This is your host, Kyle Springer, signing off.